You are listening to an interview with Garrett Riccardi and Julian Rose of Formless Finder. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Maybe we can just start off with maybe where you, or what you studied as undergrads and how you came to Princeton and just, just the beginnings. Sure, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, I mean, yeah, that, that, that is actually a good, uh, a good place to start, actually, because um, to fast forward slightly, Garrett and I were the only two students in our Princeton class that hadn't studied architecture as undergrads, so I think we, a little, we kind of figured that out pretty fast, and that was, we were sort of friends from our first year, and then oh, we can get to the story later of how we actually started collaborating, but um, we both had a strong interest in art, actually. I studied art history at Harvard and had this sort of background in history theory and writing. Um, but then ended up writing my undergraduate thesis about sort of art and architecture interacting in the 70s and got interested enough in architecture that I thought oh, I should actually give this a try. Then I ended up working um, for an architecture office when I graduated from school and then, you know, was thinking about applying either to a PhD program or an MRC and then ended up liking it enough that I did an MRC and then sort of was at Princeton suddenly. So Yeah. Um... I, I mean, we both came from art backgrounds. Mine was more in the studio arts. Um, I studied at Cooper Union, uh, probably with a lot of um, uh, a lot of people working more in the say conceptual realm of art. Uh, and from there, I studied at the uh, Whitney Museum's uh, independent study program, mm -hmm. pro another program say less concerned with the visual and more with the say, conceptual critical side of uh, art practice. Um, and then after that, worked for a number of uh, um, art architecture practitioners, uh, also photographers and painters as well, but mm. uh, uh, was in that world of the studio assistant. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, made my way, uh, probably uh, by way of working th uh, with Vito Acconci, who always had a practice between art and architecture, had become more and more involved with uh, the design side of his practice and uh, sort of he had and I had convinced myself that architecture was uh, where I should be headed. So, yeah. When you were at Cooper, did you do um, primarily sculpture or painting or just sort of like a mishmash? The, at Cooper, the, uh, the sculpture department is, is sort of... Uh, probably not making as much sculpture as you'd imagine and it, it's a kind of uh, land of misfits for people doing this that and the other and uh, tends to absorb the most architects looking to get involved in the art school so mm -hmm. uh, probably the most cross-disciplinary so I was primarily taking sculpture classes but not necessarily making sculpture per se but uh, you know the other side of that was some video work that I had done. Julian, um, so you worked in an office for a little bit before you came to Princeton. Yeah, and I should say, too, I had kind of a funny trajectory, um, or not funny, but just it had been mixed actually pretty early because I had started taking some classes at the GSD as actually as a freshman as well. Mm. So I was kind of um, not studio courses, obviously, but some of their uh, history theory units. And um, yeah, so through that, I had actually done a few things like I had I had worked for um, for AMO as a kind of researcher, but then... They, you know, it's, I mean, that office is, it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of like the Whitney program almost or something, I would say. I mean, so many people cycle through it. Like, you know, it, it's hilarious over the years how many people 
because they obviously share a space with OMA and they're like, oh, you were at OMA? Like I was too, or like my friend so-and-so was. And I never know anybody because it's like literally, I mean, I, I was there before the crash. It probably changed a little bit, but I mean, you know, it's like hundreds of young people like me cycling through there every three yeah. to six months, basically. So it's a really exciting, mm -hmm. exciting place. And also the boundaries were pretty fluid. Like I didn't really, frankly, feel qualified as a designer. Like I didn't know AutoCAD or anything. Um, so I thought I was there to kind of do research and writing and then... They actually needed someone to work on their the like the iteration that they were working on at that point of their Hermitage proposal, which is an amazing project. I don't think it'll ever happen, and it's gone through like <laughs> probably at this point like over a dozen iterations. But um, I don't know if you've seen it all. They it's sort of a you know reconversion of that complex into a museum. Um, and when I was working on it, they had this incredible idea of like a you know it has so many rooms. It's like this sort of amazing neoclassical. Um, you know, palace, and they were working on this plan to put like a one work of art in every single one of these like hundreds of hundreds of rooms. And so, you know, it was a really interesting exercise, and that was kind of the most design mm -hmm. I had done up to that point. And then um, after that, you, you know, sort of looked for other positions that were kind of in between. I actually worked for Log Magazine very early on, like the third issue, which was really fun. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, being around Cynthia and Peter are great, and that was another. I didn't think about this until now but that was another funny case like the same way that AMO is just a corner of OMA log is just like a corner of Eisenman architects so you you know um in a way like the boundaries are much more fluid than I necessarily realized and so that was kind of part of what set me set me up um and I think I don't know I feel like Garrett and I have never really talked about it in depth but I think probably for both of us there was a strong interest in art but then a little bit of a dissatisfaction with some of the field too that you know architecture seemed like it was going to open up some yeah, possibilities um, for me probably more as an academic you know I think there were some concerns about what it would really mean to yeah. you know sign on to that PhD track and <laughs> you know sort of like I, I just wasn't I think architecture seemed, seemed like it was maybe both a little more expanded and you know maybe it's obviously hard to make judgment calls but slightly more relevant or at least to me it, it had a you know sort of social and political connections that I was excited about so right. I mean even at the Whitney program when I was there there was a a brief pilot program within architecture oh, um, and uh, I had been at Cooper when uh, Tony Vidler took over as course, D yeah, um, yeah. and he his there's always been some exchange between Cooper and the Whitney program if nothing else just bringing a, a couple students over there every couple years and so Tony Vidler was introduced yeah. as yeah. Um, kind of uh, in addition to the intellectual side of the program that was involved with public space and public art practice. Um, <laughs> so he came in, but, you know, at the same time you had people like Hal Foster filtering through or yeah, writing yeah. about design and yeah. uh, design crime. That book came out about the same time. So there was this influence of art and, uh, say, architecture on the art world, but didn't necessarily know what to do with it yet, except for look yeah, at it yeah. as maybe forms of, you know, failure or uh, through uh, critique and representation. But uh, that was a sort of frustrating position as a, you know, someone who was a, always made things or thought of themselves more as a practitioner. So that was a, a sort of interesting yeah. coincidence and a, a, the, the architecture <laughs> a component to the Whitney program was a kind of a complete failure and uh, it was ended after about two years, but... I you mean, because, like, art is traditionally more critical of architecture? 
Yeah, I know. think so. And especially with the program that came more from the art side looking at architecture, right, it was right. more of a, you know, where public space had failed or, you know, looking at Matta Clark is not yeah. necessarily something generative, but also very critical of space. And I think the art world, as far as I knew it, had always adapted that approach of a criticality towards space and not a sort of generative practice, which is, I mean, this may dovetail into some stuff later, but, you know, Julian, I have a critical component to our practice, but I mm -hmm. think, uh, I don't think we would just leave it in that realm. We wanted the critical to be very generative too, and actually, you know, produce design and built works, uh, as a result of having critique. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's all, those are great points, and that's hilarious, actually, we somehow never talked about the, like, a, a failed architecture <laughs> program at the Whitney, that's, well, Oscar that's kind of fascinating. The, oh, interesting, okay. um, That's really <laughs> funny, but I would say just, while we're still talking about our kind of early backgrounds and formation, I was, I had a, in a way, a similar encounter, but less with contemporary art, I guess, because the historians I was kind of studying under, um, I, I actually got, you know, in my opinion, like a really lucky break where I, Yves Lambois was there until I, I guess about my junior year. And then he unfortunately left, although now he's in, you know, the advanced Institute of France studies, so he's close to you guys. Um, and then Benjamin Buclo came at, you know, the, my, my senior year. So it was a kind of interesting mix to, and I think those are, um, both scholars for whom architecture has been very important in different ways. Um, you know, I remember Yves telling me that, um, like some of his, fundamental insights about Richard Serra's work, which are obviously, I think, have been incredibly important, not just for art history, but then for a whole generation of architects, came from reading that uh, Peter Collins book, Changing Ideals in Modern Architecture, talking about parallax effects in columns, for example. So, you know, I think just obviously super intelligent um, approaches to space. Um, and then Buchla, also a lot of the artists he was interested in, from Dan Graham to Michael Asher. Um, you know, I think a little bit that's like the prehistory of the Whitney program, right? It's these, yeah, it's like that's institutional critique. It's a very clear kind of attitude towards architecture. And so I, th I think I was kind of, um, in a way, I guess, trying to sort all that out. I think, you know, uh, Evelyn is also someone who's written really brilliantly on, uh, you know, the style and like, you know, I think he's very aware and constructive. I mean, you know, there, I think there were sort of certain historical moments I was exposed to where it seemed like there were some really generative, exciting possibilities of art and architecture. But then I was exposed to this sort of recent history of uh, more that I think what Garrett's talking about, that legacy of like sort of architecture being viewed as a failure and the sort of face of the institution and art kind of then in a way like sort of there to save the day yeah, yeah. but then weird i think but then what's what's what was strange and i think just this is where criticizing yeah. yeah and i think that's where garrett probably as a practitioner even like probably came to that sooner than i did but then sort of trying to look forward um and even in my some of my writing at that point which is now a long time ago but you know i still felt like in retrospect was kind of trying to valorize art or say like well you know like you know, maybe Dan Graham understood this about suburbia that architects didn't get it. You know, that's true to some extent, but I think you also realize, like, I think Garrett's uh, point about trying to be generative is really true, because I think, you know, that was already almost half a century ago, and I think the problem with that legacy a little bit is it encouraged artists to kind of, you know, I mean, I'm generalizing, but I would stand by this a little bit to kind of step out of the game, and, like, you're basically, you have sort of, like, the, the world of architecture that's sort of for better or for worse really entangled with all these sort of political and social realities and I think that's definitely a set of constraints but I think we're kind of at the point where we'd rather engage those and I think um, there's a certain legacy of art that maybe started out 
you know, in the ring too, but then has more and more sort of gone towards the model of stepping out and trying to sort of comment on or frame. And I think at a certain point, like you can kind of only frame things for so many years before you yeah. get, at least for me, you know, where you get a little frustrated and it's like, well, let's just try and do something now you know, and see where it goes. So. I always thought there was kind of a snarky attitude toward like architecturally inclined artists and they were it's like they would always go after like the easiest game, like yeah. No, I, I think it's I think it's a problem, and I think I mean now, um, you know, I still I, I still do a lot of writing and some editing and stuff, and I you know I'm still sort of fairly involved in the art world, and I think it's tricky because I, I think there are some practices that I'm really excited about where people I think on the one hand maybe there's finally a kind of change coming where I think architecture is becoming important enough to a lot of our practices that our people are starting to develop much more sophisticated attitudes but I at the same time completely agree with there's still a crazy default where it's you know just the idea of like glass and mullions can stand for like you know all of modernism or you know I mean there's still some incredibly sort of uh, clunky I think ways that it's engaged which yeah. are obviously very frustrating so I mean I think it was only through architecture that I uh, learning more about the the history and the current practice of architecture that I could have really understood how that opened up yeah. because uh, the the glass mullion <laughs> stand in I think that happens in a, a say a lot of cases even for uh, other forms of contemporary practice you know there's like you know artists looking at sort of whatever you know DIY architecture yeah. or or the digital and it's yeah. always um, I think uh, it can be reductive if you take architecture out of the hands of all the kind of mechanisms surrounding it. Um, There's always an interesting essay that I looked at, which was uh, I think Al Alejandro's essay in the Natural History uh, oh, yeah. uh, catalog for um, uh, uh, Herzog Demeron. And sort of what he points out about their practice is, you know, a lot of people are attracted to them because they have a, a relationship and the sort of, uh, you know, mystique related to the uh, art practice and art world. But for him, what, what he thought was most interesting was that, okay, they have that relationship, but architecture also has to deal with clients and power and, and money and, uh, you know, civic, uh, if not responsibility all the kind of red tape that goes along with those things and and that complexity is sort of what creates a major difference between the sort of you know representational form of yeah uh, critique of architecture and the sort of generative form of architecture that actually has to not critique those things but critique them and make something out of it and uh, sort of bring it into the world which I, I always thought was could only learn about that through going uh, within architecture, the discipline itself, and trying to work through it. You know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's a great point. And just to follow up, um, it's funny because Garrett and I actually both spent time working for Vito, but Garrett worked there before grad school and I worked there after. So I think it was a very different time in, in the studio and obviously a different time for each of us in our formation. I kind of worked there on, on the way out, actually, like having had a very corporate job immediately after Princeton and then like being really unhappy with that and then trying, you know, it's kind of on the way to you know, making Foremost Finder the, the like, primary thing. And uh, I remember not really under... I guess where I'm going with this is that it's there's a certain irony in this sort of critical artistic attitude given how compromised the art world is itself now. You know, I mean, I think it's kind of at this point 
you know, it's kind of absurd to try and argue that architecture is the, the discipline that's entangled with all these realities, you know? I think, I mean, I, I would still argue that it's entangled in a positive way because it is a sort of more, in a way, public and ubiquitous thing. Like, it's not such a sort of rarefied yeah. subculture. But, you know, I remember talking to Vito and kind of, it, frankly, kind of blowing my mind how he just told me one day, I remember, I don't know how we got talking about it, about sort of this exhibiting in galleries and like you know he and his generation I think actually thought they were done with the gallery system it was like they were still showing work but he was like you know I had a great teaching job I had a studio I thought we didn't need dealers anymore you know he was just right. being honest he was like you know I was just making my work like most of my friends were doing the same thing we were all teaching at that point you had things like Nova Scotia College you know just supporting like amazing work you had some you know it was just sort of a different era and I think obviously and this isn't something I like know super well but I think we all know that then kind of in the 80s with like pictures generation the return of painting like there was just this pendulum swing where the market really reasserted itself um obviously not randomly just because of like you know all, like all kinds of things of you know just sort of in, in American culture and in the economy and everything but I think and I sort of in a little bit uh I think feel like it was interesting to hear more from someone who lived that history, kind of what that moment might have meant. And then I think now it's interesting right. to look back and, you know, art in a lot of ways seems just as constrained to me, if not probably much more so than architecture. So yeah. Maybe to bring it back to yeah, yeah. your guys' practice, I think you both talk a lot about the, the relationship between art and architecture, and you obviously both come from uh, you know, theory backgrounds that I guess have a lot of focus on the, or focal point is actually art. Maybe there's a frustration there and you both move into architecture and then when you start collaborating you produce work uh, that is in some ways very different than anything else coming out of uh, sort of grad schools at the time and it's I think to most people not work that would immediately bring to mind architecture um, so how did you how did that happen yeah well I mean I guess there's two things there's uh, sort of the you know, I don't mean history in a big way, just like a small personal history of the the thesis that we put together. Um, um, and uh, it's something that comes out of the tradition of the Princeton thesis, which is, um, you know, you, you, can, you can work on a, a project in two senses. You can work on a project that's a, a building and a site, or you can work on a, a kind of architectural project. And, uh, you know, there's successful examples of both those if you dig through the archives of Princeton architecture uh, theses. Um, we were certainly, uh, in doing our research, interested in, uh, you know, the Venturi's model of a architectural thesis, which, uh, you know, was more of a proposal within the discipline, which I think eventually, you know, as it's told, turned into the uh, Complexity and Contradiction book. So, uh, not to make our goal sound too lofty, but, you know, we were more interested in pursuing that type of model that you could propose a research project within the field of architecture that would have uh, design output, but would also have output in terms of ideas and texts. Um, so I think that's uh, sort of where it started. And we had, uh, you know, we had interest in the, looking at architecture in the slightly different way um, and uh, through research and through working and through sort of browsing through our interests and previous work we had done um, we started to 
make this into a more cohesive argument. Um, and, uh, you know, we can get more into the formless later, but that was sort of uh, open territory, um, both uh, because it seemed like something in the air in terms of architecture practice, looking for something, say, beyond the digital or beyond uh, or using the digital beyond the tools that had been used so much in terms of geometry and pattern and uh, shape making. Um, I'd say that's uh, that was kind of a, a, a big component of it. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you want to add yeah, to I, I, probably I, a lot more. I mean, I, no, I think that's a great encapsulation. The only thing I'd add is I think, um, I mean, you're right, obviously it doesn't, you know, maybe what we started making right away didn't really look like architecture at the time, but I think for us, actually, um, it was a little bit of a back-to-basics attitude where, yeah. you know, I think, right. especially as people who had kind of worked in different, different fields and different media, I think we both had a sense with the thesis of trying to really probe architecture as a sort of a term and a, you know, kind of process and say like, well, what can architecture really do that maybe we haven't done before or that we think is interesting? So, and I think that gets back to the question you guys kind of began with about, you know, starting our history a very long time ago. I, you know, I think for us, it was a lot about, you know, trying to look at some problems that we think are pretty fundamental disciplinary problems. Um, even in the yeah. dumbest sense, I mean, the, the example we always use that we can talk about more in a minute, just like the sort of post and beam construction or like the, which then, you know, in the modern era kind of became this, the domino, like the slab building, you know, these kinds of things that I think in the end were very generative for us. And I think that came a little bit out of a sense of, you know, wanting to look at, maybe slightly deeper problems, not wanting to necessarily engage. I think with theses, you know, they can go in a bunch of different directions. One is to kind of try and take like a hot program and solve it. So like, yeah. I don't know, I mean, this, not to me, there's probably some poor kid at Princeton doing this right now, but like, like the museum for digital art or something, it'd be like, ah, oh, this is like the future of the museum and we're going to do this. And it's going to like look really crazy. And like, it's, you know, I think that didn't really, so there was like the programmatic route didn't really appeal. And then I think also, you know, I think the the formal route didn't really appeal just because what Garrett said is true. I think, you know, there and there's been some obviously pretty interesting theses that have done this, but, you know, another way is to kind of try and engage technology or some new representational technique and like kind of create a new look for architecture. And I think we also felt like we were coming at a time where, you know, there had been some interesting projects like that, but there had just been a ton of that going on in the last like 10, 15 years in the field. And we weren't as interested in that either. So... What was the climate at Princeton pedagogically at the time? Like, were they accommodating? Did you get resistance to this? No, I mean, the only resistance, I mean, frankly, was that it wasn't crazy enough at the beginning. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The resistance was like, well, everyone, we want you to do this, but we want we want it to succeed. So you can't go like, you know, you can't do what we're expecting to see. We need to see something we're not expected to see. So, yeah. Um, you know, frankly, um, uh, you know, we had, we had, like everybody, sort of two advisors. Uh, Stan Allen was our immediate advisor. And then, uh, you know, Liz Diller was sort of uh, overseeing it. And frankly, the, the majority of the critiques we got from Liz were like, you know, this isn't going far enough. This isn't, and I mean, yeah. I, I, there, I still, she has said some strange things. I still haven't wrapped my head around, like, she wanted to us to, like, pour vegetable oil into plaid shirts uh, because she thought it would like <laughs> right. somehow obscure the 
some I, I don't even I frankly we're, there's several things we're still trying to figure out but um, I think everyone was very supportive of producing a, a thesis beyond the project program uh, kind of typology of the thesis totally. there I mean yeah. I would say you know not to yeah I don't know not to sound too much like a loyal alum but that was by far the best part of my yeah. education at Princeton I think you know yeah. architectural pedagogy is uh notoriously difficult and it's not like Prince in our era had it nailed but I think the thesis was one thing that actually was really well run. I sense. do think I mean I always thought there's a healthy uh, sense of like uh, if not I wouldn't say student rebellion but student critique within the uh, say studio format and yeah, that, you, yeah. know, you, you do look at a lot of schools and the goal is to uh, learn through the practice that the uh, studio professor right. teaching that class themselves works through. And very often, uh, schools will uh, conglomerate um, professors that also work within a similar you know, style or format or whatever. So s schools have, uh, you know, different schools have like, tendencies or typologies um, that within you know the work that comes out of it and I thought well we were there and certainly through the thesis that 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 was not uh, an encouraged attitude towards architecture it was you know uh, you know can you push back if we hope so but you have to do it in a, a, a thoughtful way yeah. yeah and I would just quickly add I think another thing that really can't be overemphasized um, is the connection, the really intense connection of the history theory faculty, I think, yeah. to our project. And I think there was, we really benefited from a really generous and very serious engagement from them because I think there was a sense, and I, I think this is, you know, I think we weren't the only ones to benefit from this, but there was a real sense that the thesis should be a kind of intellectual project right. as well. And I think, you know, we had everyone from, I mean, Ed, Ed Eigen was incredible because he was like, basically, you know, we were talking about typology at some point and he was just, taking us all the way back to like Lucretius and like the, the basically like the creatures that couldn't be, you know, that were like formless, basically they couldn't be placed and like, um, and you know, and then we had Lucia, I mean, speaking of formalisms, like we had Lucia basically like telling us which like regal like yeah. books and chapters to read because like, you know, she was, you know, in her own work, she's obviously very engaged with the history of formalism, but and we can get into this more later, but you know, I think obviously there are things within formalism that are just very related to the formless, for example. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I think right. we had, I think that was, you know, as I feel like some of our best descrits were with people like that. Like, I think Lucia was the one who was like, we were trying to draw something, and she was like, I, I feel like we were like, trying, like you need and to she, just stop well, drawing. She, yeah, yeah, she was like, yeah, she, she was just like, why are you even drawing this? Like, <laughs> yeah. just, you know, it just is done or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we had some really good insights from from all right. those people. And then, of course, Stan and Liz as Garrett's thing, I think their attitude was just like to keep pushing the experiment. Yeah. So. And probably contrary to what came out of it, which was like in a, uh, a kind of half intellectual, half design project, is that, um, you know, a lot of people spend months and months kind of honing this argument and thesis right. and probably for the first two months the only thing we really showed up was uh with were uh you know about hundreds of crappy models and like <laughs> yeah, yeah everyone was really confused because our you know our presentation was focused on an intellectual argument but we were probably producing you know 10 20 30 times more than 
uh, you know, anyone had ever expected in terms of uh, physical, you know, architectural uh, output. And then alongside that, we always presented a sort of uh, dictionary, which were a sort of series of terms, uh, you know, and somewhat derived from Bataille's attempt at a critical dictionary um, that he published in Fragments. So we did work through some of the, you know, uh, typologies or formats that Bataille had set up. And that's sort of, um, you know, in discussing what a dictionary was, is a dictionary useful anymore? It seems like incredibly outdated to like only organize things alphabetically. Uh, it's, it's very linear. It's very like limiting. Um, and from that was sort of how we, uh, we broached this idea of a finder or a, a search engine, you know, something that was related to uh, collating vast amounts of textual and visual information, um, uh, but had a much more, uh, you know, not necessarily just a contemporary feel, but it was much more useful to the, you know, sort of time and uh, that we live and design in. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe one final question about that before we move on to more questions about the theoretical um, aspect of what it is that you do. There's a sense, I think, in, in Bataille's writing uh, and maybe some uh, similar sense in your writing um, that the formless comes about as when, when there's a certain maybe frustration almost. It, it, it attempts to uh, declass or debase something. Uh, what was it that um, started that frustration for you guys? Like, what were were you looking at certain projects or working on certain projects where you felt like, oh, form is is exhausted? I guess this gets into the the critical component yeah. of your practice yeah. a bit. I we certainly understand that critique, but I I say in a weird way we almost came at it from the opposite direction, which is that we felt so many people like the formless became. Um, a limit mark for what was allowable in architecture and it was almost this this thing you couldn't pass and that was like Bataille's point of view and then also Denny Hollier's point of view and against architecture is like it can't really go there and you know we started to see movements in design and technology and material investigation that you would say well actually that's like exactly that that space that you're talking about as exclusionary from architecture is like very like ripe and generative for uh, a lot of say the non-architectural things out in the world that are starting to influence architecture so it almost yeah. seemed you know it almost seemed like a, a foregone conclusion that that was something that had to be looked at yeah. yeah, and I think that's true that, you know, we've we've tried to say this, I think, many times in different ways, but that, you know, it we see it in a way as a very affirmative project for architecture, you know, that it's not, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, maybe we wouldn't have done it if there were certain things, I think, especially kind of being in school when we, when we were and everything, one being the kind of digital geometry, um, you know, digital geometry kind of trend. Uh, but it's at the same time, it was much more actually about like trying this to make take architecture and sort of show how formless it could be in an interesting way. Um, and I think that that's sort of the way that it's been the concept has been sort of theorized 
has always been to exclude architecture. And I think, you know, I mean, in our, in our formless book, I actually thought there was a pretty good discussion in the, the panel discussion or whatever, where Evelyn makes a point, you know, I think this is also where you, you know, as a practitioner, I think you have this, a little bit of this like privilege that hopefully you don't abuse where you don't, you know, you're kind of playing with ideas as long as they're generative for you. And I think, you know, we're very interested in the formless. I think we feel that rigorous thinking is just valuable and productive for our practice. So we're not interested in, you know, uh, just sort of like sprinkling these terms or they're not, you know, they're not really about justifying ourselves to anyone else. I think they're genuinely generative for us, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't, I don't know if it's not like truly formless in the battalion sense, like we don't really care, I guess, on some level, you know, and I think, cause I think precisely this idea about bringing things down, I mean, that's kind of like, if you really read Bataille, and this was what Evil and the point he kind of made, I mean, in theory, I think you would, one could argue that there's sort of no redemptive possibility. But at the same time, I think what we see is fascinating. And I think that, you know, Evil and I, Rosalind sort of addressed this in their writing about art is, you know, the, the most interesting point is kind of like the middle point where there's there's some form and there's some formlessness and we're kind of trying to figure it out. Yeah. And it's not, you know, and I mean, this point has been made like endlessly in the literature by Hollier as well. I mean, the whole point being, it's not a dialectic, like you're not trying to take like, you know, the yin and the yang and like make this amazing thing or, you know, it's, it's really just like this kind of actual sort of like intense material conflict. And I think for us, that was where it was really attractive. And, and I think that was also something we kind of addressed from the beginning and Stan to his credit was really, I think, smart about kind of forcing us to realize this was a key issue is that you know you're not necessarily trying to make architecture you're not trying to make like an entirely architectural format yeah, like, like a holistically formal yeah because that would that would there defeat are, the purpose i think there are architects who have leaned towards that yeah notion of the formless but i think maybe that goes back to the to alejandro's comment uh, about the complexity of architecture is i think if you go in that direction you end back in sculpture and totally I, yeah yeah not to <laughs> right not, not to say we, we're not interested in sculpture but as far as our practice and uh, practicing as architects that that route is sort of you know in a way totally useless to us yeah, um, yeah. um and I, th I think also just to quickly follow up on that point i think the idea that we found within Bataille's writing of use value is really important yeah. too you know that the idea and i i'm not you know i think um, you know, for him, that's kind of use as a way of bringing things down in the world. But I think, you know, and maybe we had a slight, like sort of productive misreading of that, but I think the idea that these sort of these loose formless things could be in, like very used very productively was, yeah. was really important. Um, yeah. We've tended to look at, uh, to, I mean, architects do this with everything like classic, you know, just classify whether it's a dictionary or a, a right. list or a, you know. Uh, you know, architects think in spreadsheets or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But, you know, we've, through transitioning from a, you know, theoretical academic project into the world of, uh, you know, trying to make things and have an ongoing viable practice, you know, we've, we've started to classify these moments within their use values and, you know, those things adapt to different scales. So, uh, you know, one thing we stay away from is the holistically formless 
architecture because you know when you start to work with it you know it can perform at a you know in this material can perform at the detail level in that project and that can be a completely new form of a detail and maybe it performs at the level of uh, structure or aesthetics in another project but you know there's sort of what we talked about you know these moments of formlessness that we can adapt within larger projects that have to have um, sometimes very uh, generic or static or stable elements alongside them. Yeah, and that's like I guess that's a conflict you're talking about. Yeah, and I think I think that's where it gets more interesting to us. And even I think in art history too, this point has been made. But you know that the kind of bad legacy of the formless was abjection and like this sort of you know this art that kind of like fetishized the base. And I think you know that's not really what the idea is about. I mean, I you know I feel like one of the entries in Vitae's dictionary, I forget, I think the entry is called Spittle or something, but mm-hmm. he was just talking about the philosopher's mouth and the idea, you know, I think to us that is in a way that's a fascinating thing. It's like this disgusting orifice and there's like spit flying out, but it's yeah. also articulating ideas. And it's like, that is basically what's interesting, I think. Um, Some of that has to be like the stain of surrealism too on the concept. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't know. I don't think the formalist is like inherently surreal. That's a very good point. Because you're totally right. And I think, yeah, that was the whole sort of side that we just weren't as interested in. And just, I mean, just Along the way, there were certain people that thought that was maybe more the direction we should look at. Yeah, and Um, we definitely did try and resist that. I think it it seemed like maybe the easier route to get to something outrageous, you know, instead of something that was generative. Yeah, totally. I mean, just looking through the catalog with each, I I was far more taken by the sort of post-war examples, you know, in the the Evalon and and Krauss. Yeah, and he, I mean, Evalon moves it more in the direction of, uh, well, it turns it more into like a interact intellectual and sort of spatial project and, or, you know, uh, say versions of the formless that were not necessarily material even. Right. Um, and by way of that, we started to look at Bataille's other sort of definite, you know, they're, they're the more sensationalized ones, like uh, the spit and the spider and, you know, sort of all those easy ones to grab right. onto but he has if you look through his definition he has definitions of space which are like really fascinating and he's basically talking about all the potential of space which is you know one of the materials for architecture in a way so um that yeah. brought us into all sorts of kind of other ways of looking at it um totally and i think that's something in a way that we're still kind of um in, in a way we're just kind of catching up to in our practice is all the sort of non-material potentials for the formless. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, in a way it's it's obviously such a, it's a concept that lends itself so well to material engagement. And I think also that frankly, architecture is at a moment where it could use a little materiality. So we're yeah. very happy to be, and obviously like most of our projects that have either sort of been fully designed, if not realized or even realized have a very material component. But I think there are also things that we're still thinking about, like the blind spot, you know, Bataille's like weird idea about a blind spot. Like that, I mean, we, uh, you know, we've been talking about that for like five years now. It's like, that would be amazing. You know, what would a, what would a building with a blind spot be like? I don't know. And it might not, that might be kind of a totally immaterial project. And I think we have had, you know, in, in our work, we do always try and make sure that there is some, um, I guess just what I'd say quickly is, and then in a way, this is the, like the legacy of um, the sort of art, that everyone loves um, 
like Smithson being kind of a perfect example that's sort of associated with these ideas that I think there's a little bit of a danger that it could become a purely material project, which, you know, even if it's not intended that way, I think unfortunately then becomes kind of an aesthetic project, as yeah, Garrett's saying, right. because it becomes about sort of these materials being images, essentially, or producing, you know, imagistic effects. And I think that the space definition is really key, I guess, if it, it, as counterintuitive as it sounds. If there's one thing we took from Bataille, it was probably this idea that space itself is... Like, I, I'm not going to be able to quote it well, but there is an amazing definition where he's basically talking about how squirrely space is, like sort of how every geometer and by extension, basically every architect has tried to kind of, you know, put it on a grid and define it and like work with it and quantify it and how like any, you know, just walk around in, like in a building or a city for a, a day and you realize that space is just like one of the most puzzling, weird things, you know, it's like this... Like almost like just unknowable medium that you're like lost in, and I think just something like that was really uh, important to us. So I thought it was interesting, like in Michael's essay and your publication, how he cited non-composition as one of you know a possible avenue to the formless. Yeah, which was a nice kind of like you know it's not all it's not all goop and and whatever. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more that's yeah. it, a, a less material or a less totally. obvious material avenue of yeah. Yeah, yeah it's totally. something we haven't. Um, necessarily dealt with i mean the the closest we've gone to non-composition or like same you know back to this comment uh through lucia was that you know the undrawable or right. you know like right. the composition that actually was only drawable after the fact um, yeah. some of the, one of the thesis pr projects proposed a building where like you know the the plan was only something knowable after the building was like finally constructed, um, but I think that it was, it was based on a pour basically. Yeah. So it was like the yeah. yeah. And there's yeah, that's true. There's like always this fine line, and, it, and it's probably a little bit why you know we we try we like sort of work slowly because um, you know a lot of those things can slip into these you know very conventional areas. You know, it's like <laughs> to look at. Uh, randomness or non-composition right. well, exactly. has become and I, I understand Michael has a totally different idea of that and you certainly see it in through projects of his but it can slip into the most conventional uh, you know at this point like used within sort of uh, corporate architecture uh, yeah. as ways of looking you know <clears throat> Yeah, the, randomness on facades. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the randomizing script. Certainly, been at meetings yeah. where that's probably referred to as something. If they're not using the word uh, formless, uh, at least that's that's the sort of impression. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, if our project is not totally resistive in terms of Bataille, I think we still have to ha have like a critical tack that finds. Um, and Ivalon brings this up in his introduction is that, uh, you know, this is one version of the formless project and it's not a project that ends like right. cubism or minimalism. It's something that can be reinvented for each kind of time period. And I think we're constantly looking for the reinvention within now that doesn't slip into, uh, a kind of mannerist, uh, formlessness. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think quickly, I mean, I think I agree that for Michael, it's it, he's got a specific interest in non-composition because of his relationship to digital technology. And yeah. I think, you know, he he's using it very productively. But I think for us, in a way, um, 
I think that also very much comes out of the history of painting. And I think, I mean, I think Michael would agree with that. I think he even make kind of makes that point in that text. And I think for us, um, like, I, I guess I agree with you. I think it's like if you were kind of educated in the era when everyone was looking at like Peter Eisenman sequential diagrams and stuff that, you know, you're trying to sort of break down that system. And I think for us, it's like maybe better to just not draw a plan at all. You know, I think, so I would say for us, non-composition almost isn't a term because we'd rather like if we can just sort of take any notion of composition out of the equation. Yeah. So it's just like hopefully even one step removed. Like for us, I think that's where like our, we almost didn't think we needed non-composition because we went straight to like the process or the like, yeah. you know, the looseness or the whatever it was, like the, the softness or, you know, we went straight to sort of the, the quality or process. Hopefully they kind of took care of that. It sort of took composition off the table anyway. So, cause I think, I think there's, it's an interesting project, but I think there's a real danger because non-composition then can become a kind of, I mean, and I think you can look at this within the history of abstract painting. It can obviously become a very formulaic thing, you know, so it's just like... Well, you've always said, talked about, like, collage, or, like, yeah, right. well, collage, or, you know, Yeah, I mean, there's certain, like, like yeah, or famously, like, Arps collages yeah, that were, like... exactly. That were, like, he was, like, dropping the, you know, ostensibly dropping the little pieces of... Of, uh, paper onto the collage and they look very composed. Like, <laughs> very tasteful. You know, yeah, yeah, you just, it's like, yeah, like, well, he dropped yeah. Them from a half an inch. Yeah, he yeah. just dropped them. So, you know, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, there's always, I think there's always the danger there. And again, this isn't, I think Michael is using it super productively in his own work, but I think for us it was like, we almost didn't want to go there because there is such a fine line you have to, you have to sort of negotiate. Yeah, I think actually the, uh, Yvalen also makes a very interesting point and what he doesn't include in the book and he actually mentions that he's not going to include uh, certain uh, Fontana works and certain right. Manzoni yeah. works yeah. for precisely that reason to yeah. not even go there with the uh, discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I guess given that we're, we're <coughs> on the topic of formalist already, can you maybe draw the history of the formalist as you see it in your uh, practice and in your work? That's like a tall sure. order, I know. But. Well, I mean, just quickly, I, I think we, you know, we lo we love to go back to Plato, kind of, you know, um, and I guess we can put this in the bibliography because I don't remember the quote anywhere. It's been a while since we talked about it. But, you know, in one of um, the dialogues, like, um, someone's asking Socrates about basically, like, like where they, like, how they should understand uh, hair and, like, you know, and mud. And they say, and like, you know, if everything has an idea, like, what is the idea of hair? And then there's, like, some great response about, well, but, like, not everything has an idea, you know? <laughs> and I think yeah. from the beginning, in a way, that's the point, Garrett, like, I guess, just to quickly bracket the whole history, like, that's the same point that Garrett was making about architecture, that there are certain things that have been excluded from the field and are still excluded today that we'd like to open up to. So I think in a way, um, the point is actually kind of a very ahistorical one that just the formless is a fundamentally a kind of conceptual problem of, um, of understanding of sort of certain things always being outside of one's system of understanding, whether you're a philosopher or an architect or whatever. And that, you know, um, then for various kind of more specific historical reasons, today there are sort of particularly interesting things that have been excluded that we'd like to let back in yeah. that's like in a nutshell schematically yeah but we did i mean during the thesis we put um something together we called a say a history of near misses too so there's right. like there's like i guess there's the exclusionary side which mostly came through texts 
yeah, I would say. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, we looked at Alberti, who was talking about decorum, or, you know, levels of, you know, taste that had to drive architecture. And the formless is certainly like always outside, if not tasteless, outside of uh, taste or something, you know. So Alberti was like another big moment. And then, you know, and then the near miss was the sort of other side of the exclusionary, which were these sort of bizarre moments that, you know, popped up and whether it was like Piranesi or, um, uh, you know, Mendelssohn or, you know, and, you know, we're always very careful because we didn't want to make expressionist or architecture. um, But, and some of those, I guess those are actually two examples because Piranesi is uh, non-expression is very intellectually (laughs) confounding and rigorous and Mendelssohn is a kind of expressionist architecture, but we, so we plotted like the texts that tended to be more exclusionary and then these sort of uh, moments uh, within design architectural practice that produced buildings that people sort of didn't know how to classify or didn't know what to deal with. And um, there's almost seemed to be this like uh, accumulation of these throughout time, almost to a point where they became maybe more normalized within architecture. And I think... Um, you know, now you have a greater mass. I don't know if we'd all, we'd call them formless, but say stranger moments within uh, production of buildings that we thought, you know, you were probably at a moment that architecture could <laughs> start to accept a more, uh, you know, <clears throat> mutant thing as a, a possible uh, solution for building. Um, and I think that's that accumulation of moments was our history yeah yeah rationalized this could be a project for now yeah definitely and i think just to wrap up so yeah it wasn't really about tracing the evolution of the concept because i guess that's one nice thing about the formless the fact that it's not really an idea or a philosophical construct so it was more about sort of trying to see it as this kind of very fundamental ongoing thing and then as garrett said i think it was productive for us to isolate moments in history and sort of realize i mean this is kind of the argument we've made many times but on some level architecture has always been about you know at any point in history it's always about the sort of dominance of some understanding of form that's kind of structuring the field whether explicitly or implicitly and then there have always been architects that are kind of trying to wriggle away from that and you know you can and you can obviously you know i mean like sort of a classic example being like the renaissance and and the baroque and i mean you can obviously say well the baroque's not formless for all these reasons but i don't think we're again it's not about that kind of like rigorous application of the concept it's more just like well that is interesting to us to say there was a moment when you know there was a like sort of an emphasis on kind of more orderly proportions etc and then there was a moment where it was kind of about like the like overwhelming by multiplication and like sort of different forms of perception and so you know not that we have to look at this and say like well this is the you know this is the building or this is the era that like really was able to articulate the formless in an architectural way but just like and that's pretty interesting. Someone was unhappy with this definition of form and they did this other thing, you know, and, and I think realizing that that had in fact been done dozens of times throughout the history of architecture was very refreshing to us because it kind of confirmed. Yeah, it's nice. that, I mean, a lot of architects that work through history have a sort of, say, re- reactionary relationship to it. It's like, okay, you know, modernism did this, right. so we're going to do this. Right, like, exactly. Postmodernism did that, we're yeah, going to yeah. do this. And it's very sequential. And I think by making this, say longer i mean it sounds silly because it 
but by making this longer history, it almost became less linear because you weren't just reacting to the most right. immediate uh, precedent in the timeline. You were sort of like looking at this, uh, you know, dotted, you know, timeline. Yeah, this graph of, or something. Yeah, exactly. It's not as temporal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and I, th I think... I think that I, for me, that's been an interesting way to work because, you know, I've always been exposed to through art and architecture is like, you know, yes, you need to know everything, but you're probably going to react to what came just before. Um, and this was a, a way to open it, open that up. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, just quickly, this is like a longer topic than we need to address today, but I do think our generation is in a funny point where we in a way we're like the first generation that doesn't have an obvious just before. Like I think would sort of, because yeah. mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, That's even our professor, even, you know, this is a little bit maybe where Michael is maybe why he's interested in non-composition in such a focused way. I think even the first generation that kind of went to school in the nineties that was like trying to get beyond theory and trying to sort of free themselves from that. I think they were still so much in it that they ended up it had a very strong effect on their formation and I think that there was a clear sense that they were like had it you know they had to like react like just even the whole projected practice thing right. like you know post-critical whatever like that was still a real co in a way coherent project and a reaction against and I think going to school 10 or 15 years later and I think this happens in art practice too it's like I mean it's because it's true you can kind of trace for so long these sort of like reactions and then reactions and reactions and I think in a way we needed an approach that would we felt like just kind of open up a much broader history to us because it wasn't really clear like i don't know if you wanted to, if you wanted to respond to something in the last decade i don't even know what you would choose you know i mean we are at this kind of different moment so that seems kind of petty to like pick a fight with one of the 16 micro projects <laughs> exactly. That yeah, exactly. it wasn't gonna be that productive i think yeah, yeah exactly but maybe just in the interest of time, we could transition yeah, a little bit for and sure. talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, those are great <laughs> answers. Then. But <laughs> we could talk about um, just some actual projects that you've, uh, sure. you know, as you've begun to confront the parameters of competitions and, and built work, um, how the, yeah, how your conception of the formals has changed with um, specifically PS1 and uh, yeah. Miami Basel. Yeah, we, I mean, it's very strange because the PS1 proposal was our first project and you know we both worked for offices and people that have made things but it I mean it's a bit of a jolt to go directly from <clears throat> Princeton which tends towards the, the theoretical not the practical into a, um, a a thing that's very practical as much as the PS1 project is about exploring the new or you know whatever that is it's like a real strict project with a budget and a timeline. Yeah, an ADA and all and that like, stuff. You know, yeah, <laughs> but you're trying to keep the, the ideas going, yeah. you know, because you're just sort of fresh out of it. So uh, that was, I mean, to say the least, an interesting cha challenge. Yeah, and I think in a way we've probably gotten a little better at, at, um, at balancing the two, in part because yeah. I think we have... Are, in a way, I think we always knew that this idea of the formless moment was kind of a crucial component, but I think in a way we've become much more comfortable with that and understand said what it means. I mean, we we were talking about this the other day that I think neither of us really realized until later, but, you know, the PS1 project, um, which, like, you know, hopefully we can put images online or whatever for people who are listening, but, you know, it was based on loose materials in the sense of these kind of geotextile bags that became columns, arches, etc. So, 
it was kind of a, in a way, a, a, you know, a slight attempt to create a very flexible but kind of holistic system. And I remember we had some models where we were like, oh, is it interesting if we put like a beam on a bag or something? And we just were kind of totally not, we weren't really comfortable with that. And then I think, you know, Design Miami, it was in a way a similar brief of kind of seating shade, very flex, you know, very clearly architectural and ha very, you know, in structurally and spatially, like very clear constraints, accessibility, et cetera, but, you know, pretty flexible. Um, and I think we were much more comfortable at that point, like right. taking the idea of a truss and, and not trying to make the truss formless in any way. You know, I mean, we, we were able to do really interesting things that we can talk about briefly, like with the fabrication of the truss. And, I, you know, I think, I think there was a lot that we were very happy. We definitely didn't just take it as kind of a found element. Um, but I think we, we realized that I think, I guess what I'm really trying to say is, and Garrett sort of said this well before, but I think in every project there's a kind of moment, but also a scale where the formless can come in most productively. And I think, um, you know, if anything in our earlier work, it was a little bit like we weren't totally sure which scale would be right. And I think, say, for Miami, with Tent Pile, it became kind of the moment that the roof as one thing that's not necessarily, you know, formless purely interacts with like a wall and a pile and each each thing had kind of its own element but the formless kind of scale yeah. i don't know if you agree to get was kind of at this connection point or something yeah, and i think <clears throat> I, I, we're still definitely working on that but i feel like that's we're kind of getting a clear understanding each project we do yeah i one of the other i mean it's complete i think it's related to what you're saying but the um one of the major challenges was you know a lot of young practices get they'll like build up through a furniture scale right right and um you know we had sort of always said i mean a lot of that is like great place to do experiments um but you know we always wanted to practice and uh look at these operations and materials at the building scale which is very difficult because there aren't <clears throat> there aren't <clears throat> that many precedents right, right. <laughs> for one and if you sort of skip that smaller to medium scale um it can be quite a challenge but you know for us that sometimes that smaller scale sort of uh left out asking the question of can this make its way into architecture because yeah, you know yeah. you know you can uh, set it up as a bench or a sculpture or you know some type of display mechanism but can you do it at the level of uh, you know enclosure or public space and I think that was yeah really interesting I'm very lucky to be able to try that uh, you know definitely with those two projects from the beginning and probably the most exciting thing I think for us that we didn't I think we didn't expect at all when we were thinking about it still as a kind of speculative project is that actually what's been most effective is scaling down in a strange way. Yeah, like I think yeah. Garrett's right that a lot of architecture, especially young practice today, you kind of scale up from the installation or furniture scale into buildings. And I think what we've actually ended up doing most effectively is scaling down from the sort of infrastructure, um, yeah, right. landscape, exactly. ecology, yeah. engineering scale to architecture because, um, yeah, that's a very good point. Both those projects, I think a real like, you know, this, I think we laughed about this story many times, but I think in my mind, a real turning point was in PS1, we had this geotextile kind of sourced, picked out, um, you know, we looked at the specs, we knew it was going to work, but we needed a fair amount of it to try and make this idea feasible. And so I remember calling the company and I had like my square footage estimate and my contingency and I was really nervous and like, 
I don't remember the numbers, but I, I, I said like, you know, we need about this many square feet, like how much is it gonna cost? And they laughed and we're like, oh, we actually only sell it by the acre. So it was just kind of this amazing thing. And then I was thinking, and I was like, yeah, well, no, you know, of course, like people are using this to sort of, you know, to basically stabilize entire shorelines or like an entire like highway, 100 miles of highway embankment might have this. Like, of course, it's gotta be pretty cheap. You know, this isn't the kind of thing, it's not like, marble from a quarry that someone's putting in their lobby and you know it's just and i think for for miami there's another amazing story like that where we were having trouble uh not sourcing the sand there's obviously a lot of sand there but uh finding someone who had the the right equipment to basically help us pile it in that way and um actually this awesome like this incredible logistics guy who works for design miami he's just like you know sort of tons of years in the building trades like he coordinates everything like knows everyone he didn't even know anyone personally who had the right equipment, so he just started flying around on Google Earth, and like he just found like the first, basically like, sand pit giant like, you know, landscape industry site that looked like it would need some kind of equipment, and just <laughs> and just literally just zoomed in. He just found the closest one to Miami and just zoomed in and was like, I'm pretty sure that's the giant machine we need. I looked up the address, called them, and there and it was that's literally how we found the person to do the sand, and I think. That was also kind of this interesting wake-up call. It's like, oh, like, you know, yes, our project was a tiny pavilion that's like not visible from space, but like, you know, the the sort of scale that people often work with these materials on is a kind of like, you know, just, I mean, landscape is the wrong word because it's so much, I mean, I guess that's where we use infrastructure. Like it's it's so much these kind of designed, engineered landscapes. But I mean, like the, the guy then, he ended up telling us he was this awesome sand supplier we needed 22 dump trucks of sand and everyone at design Miami was like oh this is so crazy it's 500 tons which is a million pounds which everyone's like kind of laughing this is so insane like we're putting all this sand in the parking lot and it was insane you know on the level of an entry pavilion but then he was like oh yeah well i have this other project for the army corps of engineers we do 400 trucks a day and it's just like are you and the, but they're, they're you know they're building islands like it's that level and i think that's been in a way um probably one of, for me, one of the most exciting discoveries to realize that it's, the reason it's not crazy is because a lot of these processes are used around the world on just vast scales. And so I think architecture yeah. can really feasibly and then very profitably kind of like borrow from them. So, Do you often find yourself in a situation where you think that like you're borrowing from other fields like landscape architecture or engineering? There's a conflict between, say, borrowing and... Uh, using I guess and you're always using these technologies from other fields like it's impossible for architecture not to do that um, but I, I think it's the say the level in which it's transformed um, you know a, a lot of people when we're doing the Miami project you know the, the sort of quick reference was like oh that looks like a Robert Smithson uh, you know it was like but you know for us it was then you know yeah i mean it does look like a smithson but then starting to um take people from that and say well you know what what was the smithson supposed to do it was supposed to sit in one place unused until it like dissolves back into the earth and <clears throat> this is a way of kind of dovetailing what julian said is like looking at a larger scale um uh say building technologies that aren't about uh, leaving something until it disappears, but right. but utilizing it in different ways uh, on different days. So like, you know, that sand pile was there for 
eight days and now it's somewhere else doing something completely different for the city of Miami. So, uh, and again, that gets back to like the complexity of a life cycle of a piece of architecture in relationship to a, a piece of art. I think we, you know, they, it might have uh, aesthetic uh, affiliations with things people have seen, but we are really interested in the full life cycle of the building and the materials. Um, and I think that makes it like drastically different. Um, yeah, and I think just a quick add on, I, I think that that distinction between kind of borrowing and use for, you know, for what it is is helpful yeah. to like try and articulate um, how we see it. Because I think it's, we, this also gets back to us, you know, trying to bring it back to, I think we're, what we really think we're borrowing from is sort of architecture, the history of architecture, yeah. because I think with I this think project, you know, we talked about, I think the fact that it's available through maybe infrastructure or landscape is really convenient, but it's not really, I don't think we've been influenced so much by the history of those fields or anything, but within architecture, we talked a lot about, you know, in a way, this is the sort of same problem of like the post and the beam or the column that we've been fascinated with for a long time. But then also this was kind of a funny thing with the mass of the pile. We, we did talk about, you know, there are sort of, there are a lot of histories of architecture that begin with the monument, basically, like sort of arguably, and it obviously on some level, who cares, but it's, you know, one way to start the history is with, you know, not actually a space of occupation, but with just like a sort of a monumental marker and that like that's, that space was... Space radiating object. Yeah, I mean, that was true for Hegel, um, you know, like, like Los famously with his mound in the forest, you know, like that's architecture most fundamentally. So, um, and then, you know, even Gideon was like kind of obsessed with the pyramids, like this sort of incredible, you know, the, basically the non-hollowness of these spaces. So, you know, I, I think that's something, again, it, like to us, it's, I guess in a way, it's more of like a transplant or something where it's like, okay, this is like, thank God this is a thing that exists in infrastructure because that means we're going to be able to work with it, but let's bring it back more yeah. towards like these architectural problems we've identified. Like, yeah. But. And I, I mean, I think when we're borrowing, it's usually because uh, we see something that's been used maybe not up to its potential. Like, yeah. you can find piles of the, uh, sand everywhere that's like, a, say, non-structural, non-recreational, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, mound. And the challenge is finding those bizarre moments that can be, like, imported into architecture and then they have a totally different use. Yeah. I mean... Uh, the way that you know uh, would be seen as like a piece of landscape, but then is transformed into a building element. I think is uh, when it gets really exciting because you project use it. You know, especially for a fair, um, it has you know seating and shading requirements that uh, uh, are really tied to the program of comfort and everyone right, right. <laughs> needing you know accommodating for fifty thousand people using it over. Uh, five days but uh, at the other end you can't like um predict you know that was one side of the pile but then the other side you, you know you couldn't really predict what was going to happen and uh, you know we hope people would use and sunbathe and sit on it and people did all those things but they did way more things with it too which was probably the most exciting part is to yeah, make something sure. that uh you know, you can design moments into it, but people are going to take it over to a degree themselves. And I think that's kind of an exciting uh, thing. Yeah.
If you have time, and yeah. we're running a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, another question, or maybe a last question. Yeah, sure. In terms of closing thoughts, sure. kind of thing. Um, <laughs> so that I think it's very interesting the transition between uh, sort of the model and the concept of formless into an actual built yeah. thing, because you run up against all of the problems that architecture, and particularly contemporary architecture, runs run up against, which is yeah. zoning, code, and engineering. Right, so the, the thing um, that you're trying to work against in some way when making uh, formless work or formless ideas, right? you were mentioning before, designing something that you couldn't draw. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Suddenly, that, sure. that's where you start <laughs> in, in <laughs> some sense. How do you uh, deal with that? How do you work with that? Uh, does technology suddenly come back into play with, say, finite element analysis? Or... Definitely. I mean, I, there are a few really quick thoughts, and I'm sure Garrett will have more to add. I mean, um, one thing quickly about drawings and drawing sets, I think one thing we've actually been able to, in a strange way, take advantage of is the abstraction of drawing that I think it's easy to forget, and I think especially with things like Revit and you know, certain technologies, I think there's been an emphasis almost on the drawing is like, you know, more and more faithful to, and I think just even the way a lot of us worked in school, the drawing isn't even something you draw, it's like a snapshot of your model. And I think for us, in a way, it's been kind of good to remember, like, for example, to make, yes, we definitely needed a permit set for Design Miami, but we didn't, we weren't actually trying to draw the pile. We just knew the angle of repose and we made a triangle. And you know what? That's, that's literally actually what a drawing is supposed to be. It's an abstraction that sort of functions in this very specific way. And that, so I think in a way that's also been kind of liberating is like not all of our representations have to be formless. Like, you know, there is a tremendous degree of abstraction that I think for us just sort of multiplies and then the drawings are still very useful. Um, I think then quickly as far as engineering, I think... A, you're absolutely right that technology becomes really important. I think there are some amazing, like some really exciting things. And actually, we've talked to Axel about this. And he was, I think, really in a way instrumental about our thinking. But, you know, the, the, the level which, you know, the kind of dumb example you can always use is like, say with a field of columns, like, you know, you used to have to place every single one maybe. But now you could easily get to a point where you say, well, as long as I have like 75% of my columns on this 25% of the floor plate, the building will not collapse. Like you can do a lot more kind of thresholds where you say like, well, as long as I'm in this zone of the graph, like I know I'm not, the structure is not going to fail. And that's incredibly liberating too, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing just very quickly about engineering though, I think also what's been great about, and this gets back to the use value idea is that actually, um, I think less so than someone who's trying to make like a kind of sculptural building, like, you know, Frank Gehry, maybe being one example who, like he's kind of had to reinvent engineering, building engineering just to do what he wants. I think because we're so invested in the kind of fun like in a way, just basic, basic functional properties of the materials we're using, we've actually been able to kind of like integrate that very well with an engineering approach. Um, and I think Robert Silman, who we've worked with actually on a lot of these projects, including Miami has been really great and accommodating I mean because for example with Miami you know the sand was kind of the foundation basically like it you know I mean obviously it wasn't literally holding up the roof there was a retaining wall there but when they did those sort of you know um, the stability calculations like the weight of the sand was basically like preventing the you know I mean just really quickly because it's a cantilever um, you're just as worried and in, in a hurricane climate more worried actually about uplift than collapse so the sand was the thing that would actually provide the rigidity to not have the whole structure flip over, for example. So, I mean, I think that's actually been something we've been pretty yeah. 
excited about is that it, at least in terms of tech, the whole world of tectonics, I think it it's yeah, super generative rather than like, so I don't think we find ourselves really like fighting that for building codes and et cetera. Yes, certainly. But like just a, at a basic sense, the engineering isn't really a battle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, th I think a lot of architects doing any type of experimental work always run into this problem. And I, I think uh, since you're experimenting all the time, you know what's uh, possible, even though there isn't a precedent. And I think yeah, yeah. that can be the challenge is like, well, there's no precedent for a building made with a pile of sand. Right. But, you know, if you in the background, we're working with. Uh, you know, through drawing with engineers and uh, even to some degree pure scientists who study these things and they know 100% it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and that, that's kind of like the interesting struggle. And, um, uh, you know, the, the same guy who helped us source a lot of the equipment, this logistical guy, yeah. he also told us, he's like, it's nothing short of a miracle that this thing passed a building inspection. And not, not that the inspector came and was worried about it. It was that it, the paperwork got through City Hall. But, you know, three days later, it's standing. And two weeks later, the pile is in uh, sort of perfect condition as if it were installed the day before. So, you know, it's this process of working through experimentation to produce your own precedent. So now, you know, you do this once or twice or three times at different scales, and then, you know, your own work becomes the precedent for what you can uh, do next. But that's kind of a, and I think people working in the digital uh, world have that same, uh, you know, same issue. Like, yeah, yeah. well, that's not gonna stand. And, you know, very often the architects working with it, since they're working at the model level, know right. it's gonna stand way better than the most sophisticated engineers yeah. going to. So it's, it's sort of a process of, uh, convincing uh, over and over something that you actually know is uh, going to work. Um, yeah, and in that sense, it's a very old school yeah. process where you are kind of dependent yeah. on you know good clients, frankly, someone who's willing to take a risk. And then, exactly, and we're still very much at the beginning of this process. But I think that's the hope. It's kind of you, you know, you pull it off once at one scale, and then you can, you know, get someone who's willing to try it at another scale, etc. And you just kind of have to build up. You know, what's like the ideal next project? I think, I mean, yeah, we, we're sort of, I mean, we're, it's funny because we've also, the question we got a lot uh, in connection to Miami is like a lot of like, you know, sort of design press, like, so what's your ideal building? And it's like, I think part of the idea is, and I'm not saying at all that you guys are asking that question, but you know, part of the idea with the formless is that it hopefully can really apply to anything. I mean, I think one thing in a way, our practice does really move back and forth between research and um and production of different kinds. And I think having just finished the book and also Design Miami, we're kind of interested in doing a little more experimental stuff. And actually there's a, Garrett kind of briefly touched on this, but there's a physicist at University of Chicago who studies um, basically particulate matter at all scales, like including sort of nanoscale stuff, but um, who we've been able to work with a little bit and actually helped us with this. That was like one of the reasons we were like, no, the pile won't collapse because it's, it's angular it's repose. And we sent, <laughs> yeah. you know, like with this guy saw a sample of the sand and it's okay, you know. What if it um, falls over? Yeah, and like, we were like, no, no that is like, let, let us tell you, yeah, it's like, let us tell you what an angular repose means. Like it, it already fell, exactly. Um, but, you know, so I think that's something, and that's, I mean, you know, we're still kind of like, 
in conversations, but I think we're interested in like doing some kind of research, longer term research projects with him and kind of, um, yeah, I don't know. I think we're kind of excited to, I don't know if we have a, like a sort of the next concrete material thing in mind, but we're, we're we have some like longer term stuff that, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always, they're always like sort of little, a bunch of little projects, but I, I think sort of our next intellectual project will hopefully be, um, yeah, some of this kind of material research and, and that. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've tended to work, like, come up with an idea and find a place for it. In a weird yeah, way. definitely. Like, <clears throat> that, the Miami project, you know, in our mind, it's like something that came directly out of the thesis. It was like a project we've tried, almost been looking three years for a place for it to land. So, um, you know, I think when we have good ideas, we try to find homes for them and maybe not seek homes that need ideas. Um because I think that can lead to a different type of architecture. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I mean, I get just, maybe this is a good closing thought, but, um, you know, I think something we talk about is I, I think there are sort of architects of our generation who take the approach more that like, you know, practice is its own project, that every project is unique and that you need to engage clients and just sort of kind of go for it. And that's how your work emerges. And I think it's true that we you know, we would rather sort of work on a set of ideas than hopefully get people to kind of realize them in, in different ways. And I think one thing, you know, I mean, one thing that is amazing about thesis is, you know, that's definitely the last time we've been able to focus for that long on developing one set of ideas. So I think that's also something like, I think the book was incredibly helpful for us. Like, I think, at least in our opinion, like something like the book or something about hopefully this upcoming, um, you know, materials research project, I think you need to do things like that to kind of recharge yeah. because we're like back to the thesis. A yeah, <laughs> a little bit, you know, and I, I think again, the book was amazing because it was a chance to kind of like step back, do some of our own writing, engage all these other people in conversation and writing and like, you know, you kind of need to refill the well of ideas a little bit before you can, at least if you work like we do, I don't think not necessarily everyone needs to work like that, but for us, it's always so important to kind of have those, um, yeah, those sources basically. So, Awesome. Thank, right. you yeah. no, thank you guys. Yeah, no, it was, it was really fun. So. You've been listening to an interview with Garrett Riccardi and Julian Rose of Formless Finder. The interviewer was Hans Tursak. The producer was Hans Tursak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.